Hello, welcome to Cubs PS Plus, a Northside numbers game, a weekly podcast that dives headfirst into the analysis of hot topics driving Chicago Cubs baseball. I'm your host, Mike Waller, a lifelong Cub fan, full-time baseball stat nerd, and sometime youth baseball coach. I'm excited to announce that this podcast is now a part of the Bleacher Bunch productions on the Fan First Network. Starting with this episode, you'll be able to follow this podcast as you always have, but it will also be available under the Bleacher Bunch umbrella, along with Cup of Cubby Blue, hosted by Sarah Sanchez and Danny Rocket, and the Sun Ranto Show, hosted by Danny Rocket, Michael Cotton, and Infield Fly Girl. None of this would have been possible without your support, so thank you. In addition to the podcast feeds, you can always find me on Twitter or X, Instagram, TikTok, Threads, Blue Sky, and YouTube, all at Cubs PS Plus, a spin on the baseball metric OPS Plus. Please drop a rating or a review wherever you find your podcasts. Five star or one star, it doesn't matter. Your feedback helps me get better and helps others find the show. If you've done that, thank you so much. Maybe you can share an episode with a friend. You can also support Cubs PS Plus through Patreon at CubsPSPlus.patreon.com. There are multiple support tiers that come with added perks and help me keep this show ad-free. Welcome into episode 56, the Hector Rondon episode of this podcast. Remember when the Cubs had a solid bullpen and made the playoffs with regularity? Let's get back to that. The playoffs are in full swing and we're seeing former Cubs all over the place. The Cubs missed the postseason by two games. It was so close, and yet it's all so far away. The Cubs are obviously working to get back in the playoffs, but before the offseason team building begins for real, let's take a look at this year's field, the new playoff structure, and what it means going forward. Are you ready? I'm ready. Here. We. Go. How are you handling the playoffs so far? I gotta say, coming into the playoffs after the Cubs just missed, they missed by two games. Two games. They were one game behind Florida and Arizona for the two last two wildcard spots. They lost the tiebreaker with both, so they had to be two games better. But two games. You play 162, you miss by two. We've talked a ton about the margins. And we'll talk more about that as it goes. I don't want to get into that too much here. But two games. It was so close. And yet, like, this feels like the season was over a couple weeks ago at this point. I guess it was over a couple weeks ago now. Um, I thought coming into the postseason, it was not super motivated, motivated to watch, but... Ultimately, the love of baseball won out, and I've been locked in ever since. And there have been some really good series. I know there have not been great dramatic series. We haven't seen a lot of elimination games where, you know, they're going to the bullpen. Both teams are going to the bullpen in the third, trying to fight to stay alive. Uh, we haven't really, we haven't had a game five. I don't, we didn't have a single game three in the wild card round. But we are seeing some good baseball. Um, and watching the Phillies, oh, watching the Phillies is kind of, what the Cubs could have been, you know, you look back to 2018, um, the, the Cubs traded for Nick Castellanos. He was a big bat for them coming through the end of the season. He was a guy I think a lot of us wanted to keep. And Kyle Schwarber's always been a fan favorite. And uh, seeing those two hug at the end last night, like it's cool to see. And yet, you know, I don't know, it should have been, should have happened in a Cubs uniform. There are a million reasons for that. Some of which we've talked about before, some of which we'll talk about again. Um, but I think these Phillies are also an example of what the Cubs could be. I think when we look at the playoffs and we look at those margins and we see the difference between the good teams and the bad, I think it's important to f- keep in mind what the Cubs are. And really that's something every team has to do. What kind of team are you? What kind of team do you want to be? What kind of team do you want to build? There are big market teams. There are small market teams. There are 
pitching-dominated teams. There are offensive-dominated teams. There are some really well-balanced teams. There are teams with big payrolls and small payrolls. There are young teams and older teams. Baseball is a cool sport because it gives you a lot of different ways to win. And no one way is really the right way. I think every team has their own model. You know, Milwaukee doesn't have the revenues that the Cubs do, but they've built up a good, consistent team making the playoffs six of the last eight years based on developing players, getting good pitching. They've picked up a couple guys cheap that have been huge for them, like Christian Yelich. And you just have to know what you are and build accordingly. And I think the Cubs have examples laid out in front of them. I mean, on, on the one extreme end, you've got the Tampa Bay Rays and the Cubs have talked about wanting to be like the Rays, but when they want to be like the Rays, the Rays don't have the revenues. They're not paying top dollar for players. And ironically enough, they did pay, you know, a huge contract to Wanda Franco who now, I don't know, he might be done. We'll see what happens with the uh, allegations of him being involved with, you know, minors with a 14 year old in the Dominican. Um, you know, I, I don't know what's going on with that, but he has certainly not been a part of the Rays the second half of the season, and he's on, I think, administrative leave right now pending, you know, more investigation and discipline. So that was a contract that didn't work out. But, you know, with with the Rays, they develop players. They always have a young group of guys coming up. They always have young borderline star-level players or star-level players, you know, under contract, pre-arbitration, pre-free agency, And then they do a pretty good job of kind of evolving that core, trading guys off, getting young players back. Um, And that's that's one way to win. Their model, though, and you saw that in the second half of the season, they got off to a really quick start. They did win 97 games. It was a hugely successful season for them. But by the last month, month and a half of the season, they were kind of depleted. You know, they, they were missing Wanda Franco, who was a big bat in their lineup. They had a number of pitching injuries, and they just... They didn't have enough coming down the stretch and they couldn't win the wild card series. And, but then you flip to the other side, there are teams like the Mets. The Mets went on, an, and the Padres to an extent, went on huge spending sprees last offseason, you know, laying out hundreds of millions of dollars in huge contracts, trying to bring in, you know, stars at every position to try to win big. And baseball has shown over and over throughout the years that it's really hard to just buy a World Series. Only a couple teams have ever done it. The 1997 Florida Marlins definitely did. They went out and bought a bunch of superstars. They got a bunch of aging guys. They came together for one year. They won the World Series, and then the franchise, in typical Marlins fashion, sold every sold all the parts off the next year. They sort of did it again in 2003, that team that shall not be named. But that team did also have a number of young players. They had a young Miguel Cabrera up. Derek Lee, a bunch of younger guys who kind of helped supplement Josh Beckett. Um, so it's really hard to actually just buy a World Series. That's really what the Mets tried to do this year. They had a good returning team from last year, but they really went over the top trying to add more pieces. And they went after too many old guys for too much money and got themselves stuck. And Steve Cohen has spent the bulk of the second half of the season really trying to undo that. He traded a lot of those expensive guys off um, and paid their contracts in exchange for better prospects. You know, the San Diego Padres already had a good core. They added a couple of really expensive pieces last offseason. It didn't really work out for them either. I don't think they really addressed the team chemistry. They got off to a slow start. There was some 
bickering and there were de- definitely problems in that clubhouse. They did come on strong late and they, you know, only missed the playoffs by three games in the end. They went on a big run, wound up tied with the um, Cincinnati Reds, a game behind the Cubs at 82 wins. So, you know, they, they sort of got there, but that's probably a team that should have won 95 games and they didn't. So the big key is, I think what I want to look at this offseason is I don't want to see the Mets and the Padres used as examples for fans to say, look, you don't spend on free agents because look what happens. That's not what happens. Jed always talks about spending intelligently and a lot of fans, especially, you know, on Twitter, social media, overreact and say that, you know, kind of equate intelligent spending to dumpster diving. You're trying to find, you know, really cheap guys you hope to squeeze a year out of. Now, there is some of that. I mean, you, in order to be successful, you do want to find those guys like David Robertson and Andrew Chafin and some of those guys the Cubs have found in the bullpen. Julian Merriweather is a good example this year, a guy they picked up on a waiver claim from Toronto. You know, find a guy that you can get cheap, come in, maybe make some changes to his game and hope that, you know, he provides something. But that's not the basic core of how you're building your roster. And that's not how the Cubs have been building this roster since they started the rebuild. You know, two off seasons ago, they added Marcus Stroman, who was one of the top pitchers available in free agency. They added Seiya Suzuki, who was the best player coming over from Japan that season. Last year, they added Dansby Swanson for seven years, $177 million. He was one of the big four at shortstop. And although he was seen as maybe the fourth of the four and maybe by a wide margin by a lot of people, in year one anyway, he put up really the best numbers of all of them. Now, he was, you know, he didn't make the playoffs, but neither did Xander Bogarts. Um, they also brought in Jamison Tyone, who you know did not live up to his contract this year. But I think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic, and I think there's a lot of reason to think over the course of the four-year deal that he is going to live up to those numbers. And the Cubs just need to keep stacking good decisions on good decisions. You know, this year they extended Ian Happ and Nico Horner, and while that's been a mixed bag in terms of fan reaction, Ian Happ got a market deal. People get mad because they don't see him as the number three hitter. Well, if this team was where it needed to be, he wouldn't be the three hitter. He'd be, maybe he'd be leading off because of his you know willingness to take a walk, or maybe he'd be batting sixth or seventh. Ian Happ is an above average baseball player. He's an above average outfielder, and he's getting paid accordingly. He's not a superstar. He's not being paid like a superstar. There shouldn't be superstar expectations. Kind of the same with Seiya Suzuki. Like he was the biggest person coming over from Japan that season, but you know, he's, he's being paid like an above average outfielder and he has potential to be more than that. The Cubs added Cody Bellinger for a year. You know, that was a, that's a good kind of gamble. If you can find a guy like that, that wants to come and bet on himself only for a year, you know, the Cubs can throw money at those guys and it's great. But that again, like you have to build around those guys. And Jed has talked a lot about stacking good decisions on good decisions And what you want to do is not have the stagnant core we've talked so much about that they had from 2015 to 2021. Chris Bryant, Anthony Rizzo, Javier Baez, Albert Almora, Kyle Schwarber, Addison Russell, Wilson Contreras, and Ian Happ, like all really came up around the same time. Um, Add Kyle Hendricks to that mix too. He was was extended um, and Rizzo was playing on a contract where he got extended when he was younger. But those guys were all coming up at the same time. Most of those guys were going through arbitration raises at the same time. That was leading to, you know, big increases in payroll without changing the talent on the roster at all. 
like without even adding anybody, your payroll was going up 10, 20, 25% just through arbitration increases. Ideally, what you would do is you would trade some of those pieces. You'd extend a couple guys. And, and when I say extend, I don't even necessarily mean taking Chris Bryant or Javi Baez in 2017 and locking them up to a 10-year deal. I mean something like they did with Nico Horner. You know, put a contract in place to get through their arbitration years plus one or two. It gets them some guaranteed money in case they have an injury or their performance flags. Um, but it helps the Cubs establish a base price. So with Ian Happ, the Cubs got him to a pretty fair market deal. With Nico Horner, they paid out his arbitration years plus his first year of free agency. And what they're not going to have now is his salary increasing every year an unknown amount based on, you know, it's hard to project future payrolls not knowing how his arbitration numbers are going to go. I think that's a really good strategy. The Braves have locked up a lot of people for a long time. I've talked about that in an episode last last offseason. That can be a good strategy. It can also lock you into a lot of long-term deals for money that you may or may not want in five years. But I think mixing... You know, some extend some guys. Pick your guys. Pick your guys you think are going to be stars. Get them locked in long term. Awesome. Um, take some others and lock up their arbitration years. You know, it's not a bad strategy because then you can start to project payroll, and it helps you make better decisions when you go into an off season like this, where you know the Cubs don't have a lot of questions in terms of arbitration. They have a few guys hitting arbitration for the first time. Um, assuming they all get tendered contracts, Mark Leiter Jr. Um, Julia Merriweather are both hitting ARB for the first time. Nick Madrigal and Patrick Wisdom are in arbitration. But none of those guys are going to get massive, massive increases. You know, it's, it's going to cost the Cubs, you know, if all those guys go through arbitration, probably 8 to $10 million, which in the grand scheme of a payroll that's probably should go over the over the CBT threshold this year, should hopefully get up around, you know, $240, 250000000 million or more. Yeah, that's a small drop. That's not going to stop them from making a big signing. If they want to go after Shohei Otani, Patrick Wisdom's arbitration is not going to stop that. And those big stars is where I see the difference between where the Cubs are and where the Cubs need to be. So when I say the Philadelphia Phillies are an example of what the Cubs could be, they do have some young developed talent on that roster. But then the last few years, they've not been afraid to go and get big stars. They've paid for Bryce Harper. They've paid for Nick Castellanos. They've paid for Kyle Schwarber. They've paid for Trey Turner. And you heard it last night from Bryce Harper after the game. They were interviewing him and asking him, you know, about the run through the playoffs. And one of the things he said is that's why you spend the money. And it is. And if if you can get stars in their prime, that's always going to be smart money. Some of the debate becomes, you know, six or eight year deals. And I think one thing that is important to note is that a lot of star players, when they hit free agency, if if they're a star, you know, the Cubs want star power, they want superstars, they want guys who are expected to deliver multi home run games in the postseason, pitch huge innings, come in, shut really good playoff offenses down. You want star power. And to get those guys, a lot of those guys require eight-plus-year deals. And that's something the Cubs have been reluctant to do. And I, I get why the last few years. You know, 
2019, they were trying to kind of reset and figure out what was going on. They'd gotten really expensive, missed the playoffs. That's the era where Theo had said the offense was broken. Obviously, there was the pandemic in 2020, that bizarre season. And then coming out of it, the Cubs decided that the old core had to go and went to a reset. Well, the Cubs shouldn't be doing any more rebuilds. Um, that They've done two in a decade, and that's one too many. But going forward, they want to fix this so that they don't have to. So I get in 2020, you know, or 2021 spending, you know, getting somebody on an eight-year deal when you're not sure you're going to compete for the first, maybe the first half of that is not smart money. But now, I mean, the Cubs missed the playoffs by two games. They could roll this team back with, you know, young players getting better, more help from the farm system. And maybe get in. The Cubs need to take steps this season that take them from, oh, maybe we'll make the playoffs, to being in the playoffs, competing for a division, and starting to move toward, you know, best team in the league territory, at least being in that discussion preseason. You have the kind of talent the teams, people look at and say, well, that team is going to be good. They're going to be tough to beat. And when you look at stars in this league, I mean, there are so many guys, you know, Fernando Tatis, Bryce Harper, Mike Trout, Mookie Betts, Julio Rodriguez, Manny Machado. You know, there are just all these guys that have 8, 9, 10, 12 for Tatis 14-year deals. And so the length is going to matter, is going to depend on how old the player is. You know, Fernando Tatis signed a 14-year deal, but he signed it when he was 22. So, you know, he signed through his 36th season. You know, Bryce Harper signed a 13-year deal, but he was 26. So he signed through 39. You know, so on and so forth. Mike Trout signed a 12-year deal when he was 27. And some of these deals may not be great on the back end. But what I would caution everybody to do is when they look at this deal, look at these deals, don't necessarily look at, you know, if it's, let's say it's a 10-year deal. Don't look at years 8 to 10. Really look hard at years 1 through 5, 1 through 6, and then see what they are in the middle. Um, I'll use an example here. Let's take Corey Seager. He signed with the Rangers two off seasons ago when he was 27, signed a 10-year deal. 27 years old is right in his prime. He's a really good shortstop, you know, top talent. And I don't know. I don't know what he's going to be when he's 35, 36, 37. But the Rangers signed him because they wanted to compete for World Series in the next five years. And while they had a disappointing season last year, this year they're now in the ALCS. And I could probably argue that they would probably be the favorites in the next round and, you know, may face the Phillies in the World Series. But Corey Seager is a guy who's going to be good for a while. He's going to make that Texas team formidable for quite a while. And if you're going to compete, if you're going to compete for the World Series year after year after year, you want at least one or two of those guys. You know, the the Phillies have... Trey Turner and they have Bryce Harper. The Dodgers have Mookie Betts. The Padres have a couple of those guys. I mean, maybe they have a little too, a few too many of those guys uh, at the moment. But the Cubs, if the Cubs are, I see a lot of talk with the Cubs about not signing. They're not going to sign longer than a seven-year deal, or they shouldn't sign longer than seven years. There is a certain class of player that requires a certain type of contract. And if you want to have elite stars in the game, if you want to have an elite star on your team, 
you're going to have to go longer than seven years or else you're going to have to develop that player and you're only going to be able to keep that player for so long because at some point that player is going to hit free agency and they're going to want that eight, nine, ten year deal. And the way you hit, the way you absorb those deals is you're constantly developing young talent. The Cubs right now have a top five system by most measures in baseball. There are a lot of guys right now that are double A, triple A getting that are major league ready or are very close. And if you can start supplementing, if you can make at least the bottom half of your bullpen plus one or two guys homegrown, if you can get two to three guys in your rotation, even if it's not your ace as homegrown, if you can get three, four spots in the batting order, again, even if it's not your superstars homegrown, that's a lot of contributors who aren't necessarily making a ton of money at that point in their career to offset the fact that maybe you're overspending on a top star player. That's how you get those contracts. That's how you make it all work without going so crazy that you can never get back under the CBT if you want to reset for a year, but you still have star power. And the Cubs are getting in that position. I mean, this year the Cubs had Justin Steele, Javier Assad, um, Kyle Hendricks is largely homegrown. He, he was in the Cubs minor league system a couple of years and has been with them basically his whole career. Um, Jordan Wicks, you know, 2021 first round draft choice. There are guys coming up and pitching and contributing in big ways that are homegrown. You look around the field, Christopher Morrell, homegrown. Um, Ian Happ is homegrown. Miguel Amaya is homegrown. Nico Horner is homegrown. Um, PCA coming up. I know he struggled towards the end of the season, but you know he's he's another Cubs traded for him. But the, he had played like ten professional games with the Mets, so most of his development has come with the Cubs. There are just a lot of these guys that now are coming up and can be a contributing part. And so now is the time to go get stars. And the Cubs have started doing that. And I already mentioned Marcus Stroman, Seiya Suzuki, Dansby Swanson, Jamison Tyone. It's time to go make sure you've get some star power, get some top level guys deep in that lineup, deep in that bullpen. Because really when you get in the playoffs, there's not a huge difference between, you know, the sometimes even the number one team and the number nine team, you know, the last couple spots that don't even make the playoffs. And I say that not to argue against the Cubs spending that, Hey, just be good enough to sneak in. Like, no, that's not what I'm saying. You want to build a team. You want to build a roster. You want to build a core that's going to compete and get in year after year after year. The Dodgers and the Astros, the Rays to some extent, you know, some of these teams are getting in the playoffs, you know, six out of eight, eight out of 10, 10 out of 12 years. And that just gives you so many bites at the apple. And that's what the Cubs did from 2015 to 2020. You know, they, with a wild card, but they won 97 games in 2015. They were the best team in baseball in 2017 or 2016. They made it back to the playoffs and got to the NLCS in 2017. Yeah, they won 95 games in 2018, sort of fell into the wild card, lost that. But, you know, they had five out of six years where they're in the playoffs. That gives you a lot of chances. And as we've seen now in these short series, being that 100-win team is not a guarantee. Get in play well, be deep, be versatile, and take those chances. And so, you know, let's talk about the playoffs. So one of the things that I've seen talked about a lot is the playoff format. 
This is the second year of the new format where the there are three wild cards. The lowest wild card plays the the third ranked division winner. The other two wild cards play, and then the top two teams in each league get a bye. And there's been some controversy, and I get it. I mean, baseball is a routine sport. It's a matter of getting into routine, staying hot. You know, you you play virtually every day over 162. You get about one to two days off a week typically, maybe you mix in some rain outs here and there. There is the all-star break, but at least the all-star break is the same for every team. So whoever you play coming out of the all-star break also just had the same number of days off. And, you know, it's there's give and take with that. So if you're a team that has to fight for your life, you're fighting to the last week of the regular season, you're fighting to the last weekend of the regular season to make the playoffs. You're playing intense baseball. You're playing playoff level baseball. I, I, I've said on this podcast, the Cubs were effectively playing baseball, playoff baseball, virtually the whole month of September. They had to fight and claw every day to try to keep their spot and try to stay in the playoffs. Ultimately, they didn't do it well enough, but they were playing those high stakes games all along. The Braves and the Dodgers, on the other hand, um, they kind of, I mean, they were competing for home field advantage. The Braves had to go into the, it was the second game of the Cubs series, the last Cubs series, where they clinched home field through the World Series. And you want that. So that's gave them something to play for. But that's not the same intensity as fighting for your playoff life. So the Braves came into the playoffs not really having played all that much meaningful baseball over the course of, what, three, four weeks? I mean, they, they probably had the division largely locked up since mid-August. Um, you're still playing for the bye and playoff position, but they didn't come in playing that day-to-day intense baseball. So when they go out and they lose, you know, three games out of four to Philadelphia to a team that they didn't have to fight to get in the wild card as hard as, you know, the Diamondbacks did or the Marlins did, but they were still fighting to make sure they kept that first wild card spot. They came in hot and took care of the Braves. You know, they, they had to win a series before they played the Braves. And so there's an advantage of playing that meaningful baseball. There's the advantage of coming in hot to that series. But there's also the advantage of being able to get banged up guys rest, get your bullpen rested, get your starting rotation in the order that you want it. You know, the Braves came into that series able to set their rotation up. They let off with Spencer Strider. Um, the Phillies came in. They had to start, you know, game one and game four. They started their number three starter, Ranger Suarez. So there's give and take, you know, the bullpen came in a little more tax because they had to use the bullpen in the wildcard series. Now, at the same time, you know, the Braves bullpen hadn't pitched in a real game. I know they, they played some scrimmagey type things for fans just to, to keep fresh, but those guys hadn't pitched in big leverage spots in a while. But that also was kind of true if they had just started the playoffs right after the regular season ended, you know, when were the last really intense games the Braves bullpen had to hold? You know, there, haven't, there haven't been that many in a while. So when you factor those in, I don't know. Travis Sachek had a good piece last year looking at the playoffs, and his headline was, you know, rest in the, rest for the playoffs. It's complicated. Um, it can be an advantage. It cannot be an advantage. What we've seen now in two seasons with this format is last year the teams that had the buys in the first round went 2-2 two and two in the division series. 2-1, two, 2 lost. This year they went one and three. So overall, we're talking three and five. 
Um, I don't know how much difference that makes. I mean, it's a little bit surprising that the Diamondbacks beat the Dodgers, I guess, but the Diamondbacks came in red hot. They had a huge month of September. Um, they were pro- probably the most responsible for, team for taking the Cubs out of the playoffs. Cubs played them seven times in the last month and lost six of them. You know, if they go three and four, they're in the playoffs. And the Diamondbacks are probably out. And the Phillies came in. The Phillies not only came in kind of hot, but the Phillies are also a team that a lot of people had on their short list of, you know, World Series contenders coming into the season. So even though they had some injuries, they had to fight through some things, and maybe they underachieved a little bit during the regular season. That's a very talented team that we saw go to the World Series last year. So it's not unthinkable that they would be able to come in and beat the Braves as good as the Braves are. And you look at the American League, you know, Houston, I was kind of hoping the Twins could take them out, but Houston just continues to roll. Houston took the bye last year and won, wound up winning the World Series. They took the bye this year and they're still in. You know, Texas, on the other hand, came in, had to play through the first series, and then they, you know, they've knocked out the AL East, they've knocked out the Rays, and then they knocked out the Orioles. So there are a lot of different paths to the playoffs. And really, when you get right down to it, you know, we're already talking about a five-game series. So when you play a whole season of 162, the Braves and the Dodgers stand out. Those are great teams. But you can also, when you look at smaller sample sizes, anything can happen. And I know it's not playoff baseball when it's May and, and we're not in the races yet, but you know, in a sport where the Oakland A's can beat can put the Atlanta Braves on the verge of a three-game sweep and take two of three. Anything can happen between two good teams in the five-game series in the playoffs. I mean, I looked at the Braves and Phillies head-to-head matchups this year. The Braves won eight out of the 13, so they went eight and five. That's kind of close. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good control over the course of a season. But if you look at the first five games they played, the Braves went three and two. If you play the second, the last five games they played, the Braves went three and two. So out of those five-game samples, it's a difference of one game. You flip one game, and all of a sudden, you know, it's a, the outcome's different. And you come in the playoffs, the Phillies are a good team. They're motivated. They're a team, frankly, that's built for the postseason. They have guys up and down their order that can get the ball out of the ballpark. We saw that last night in the deciding game against Spencer Strider. They didn't put a ton of offense together, but they had three solo homers, and that was enough to win, you know, three to one. But when you look at these teams, even as much difference as there winds up being because the volume of games is 162, you know, if you look at the Orioles in the American League, they were the best team in the league. Out of every 10 games, they won an average of 6.2. You take the number eight team in the American League, you know, the New York Yankees missed the playoffs by two spots in something like seven games. They're going to win five out of every 10 based on what they did this season. So we're talking out of every 10 games, a difference of about a game and a half. In the National League, you know, it's about the same. The Braves had the best record in baseball. They win about 6.4 of every 10 games. And you go down to the, you know, the Reds and the Padres tied for the eighth spot out of the playoffs. And they each won about five games out of 10. So the difference between the best team in baseball and a team that, you know, missed the playoffs by a couple games, a handful of games, it's about a game and a half win, one and a half wins out of every 10 games. So you take any of those teams, match them up in a five-game series, even a seven-game series, 
And the differences just aren't that big. It can come down to, you know, if you have a top starter, did you lose the game your top starter started? I mean, the Braves got to throw Spencer Strider twice in this series, and the Braves lost both games. That's the beauty of baseball. It's also the pain of baseball. So when you build a team, you want to look at that. You want to be in that, let's call it a postseason tournament. That's what it is. I mean, for all the people talking about the rest being unfair, change the format, we can tweak the format. Baseball should continue to look at this. At some point, maybe they add more wildcard teams, but they need to look at it in terms of what's best for the game as a whole. And I think a lot of us, you know, I kind of fall into the old-timer bucket. I've been slow to come around on some things. I would still prefer baseball to not have a DH, but I recognized a long time ago, probably a decade ago, that the DH was inevitable. The American League was never going to give it up, and the National League was consistently the disadvantage because it didn't have it. So going to a single set of rules across the game made a ton of sense. Um, I don't think I'd back it out now, but I, I still kind of miss the old game I watched as a kid. And I can appreciate the idea that, you know, we want to see who the best, the idea that who's the best team that season. And we didn't even always see that. You know, the best team didn't always win the World Series. You got a lot closer, though, when you had two leagues, no divisions. The best team in each league would go head-to-head in the World Series. You got some epic matchups, just some tremendous matchups. I won't argue with that. But at the same time, let's let's look at this season. You know, a, an Orioles-Braves World Series would have been really interesting, or a Braves-Rays World Series. But if there was no... No playoffs, no division format, no wild cards, no expansion. Who's really in play coming down the stretch? I guess if you were playing for one spot, the Dodgers and the Braves might have had a big fight towards the end. The Rays and Orioles certainly would have. But you look across the board, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Texas, Houston, Chicago, Cincinnati, Miami, Arizona, you know, all these teams would have just been out of it. All these games we followed in September, all this excitement, all these nail-biting games where we're, you know, just hanging on our seat, seeing if our team can hang on to make the playoffs. Wouldn't have counted. It just wouldn't have mattered. And I think baseball has done the right thing moving in this direction. I think, especially the end of the season, you know, spring starts, you're sort of still dealing with the end of the NHL and the NBA, so there's a little conflict there. But then baseball kind of has the summer to itself, and it's kind of cool. You come to September, if you don't have meaningful baseball, if you don't have a number of cities in a race that are actually competing for something, you sort of turn the whole sports world over to college football and the NFL. And football doesn't need help. Football's already at the top of the, top of the list. Um, so we're certainly not going to see Major League Baseball take playoff spots away. So the only real question is how do we make this all work? What kind of format can we have? that we find more equitable, that seems like a better fit to try to measure out the best team. But we're also not measuring out the best team. We're saying, here are the criteria to get into a playoff. Here's the criteria to get into a tournament. And then in that tournament, we're going to give what we think are some advantages to the better teams. But then you have to play it out. As we, as we see in the, probably the NBA playoffs are the most chalk. Um, we see surprises in the NFL. 
we see, look at March Madness. I mean, that is a big tournament, and a lot of big teams get knocked out early because they're playing games. If, you, if you're if you going to play a game, you have a chance to play a bad game. And the smaller the sample size in that series, the better chance there is for an upset. So there's a better chance for an upset in a wild card round that's three three games. Although in the wild card round there, except for this year was a bit of an aberration with the Rays winning 97, you know, and the Twins only winning 87. You know, maybe there's some ways to play with some of the seeding and, and whatnot. But for the most part, look at the National League. I mean, the, the Braves, I mean, the Braves, the, uh, you know, the Brewers were the lowest wild card or the lowest division winner with 92 wins. Phillies were the best with 90 wins. Marlins and Diamondbacks, 184. So when I talk about there being a one and a half game per, or one and a half win per 10 game difference between the Braves and teams that are out of the playoffs, you start looking at that cluster of teams that are playing in the wild card, and you're talking an eight-win difference between the highest seed and the lowest seed. You know, over 162 games, that's nothing. You know, that's 5.7 wins to 5.2 wins. You're talking about a half-win difference every 10 games. Throw those teams in a bag, you're going to play three games and see how things work out. Even moving to the next round, it's five games. If all of a sudden... Like I said, if you, if you beat Spencer Strider in game one, you've got an advantage now. The Braves don't have home field advantage anymore, and you beat their ace. Um, if those things happen, you know, the upsets happen. Over time, we still see the better team win most of the time. But the to be the champion, you have to win every one of your matchups. And it's hard for any team to do that. That's why, as good as the Braves were this year, that's why they came into the playoffs with like I don't know, 26 to 30% World Series champion odds because there are just so many teams in the playoffs that they have to win you know three series and they're going to have to play three good teams you know to get to get all the way through and only one team's going to make it there've been you know there's six teams in each league 12 teams make the playoffs only one of them is going to be standing at the end so there are going to be good teams lose along the way. And the best thing you can do is build a team that's going to be there year after year after year and have the star power to give you give yourself a chance to compete, to be among those top teams year after year after year. If you can be in the playoffs six years out of eight, if you can get that first round by, win a division, be one of the better teams in the league, you know, three or four of those years, You've got a really good chance to win the World Series. Now, Jerry Depoto was with Seattle, had an unfortunate soundbite. You know, he had said he's looking for a 540 winning percentage consistently. And that can be taken a couple ways. And it's been discussed on some other podcasts. But, you know, one way I like it is if you look at over the course of a decade, if you can average a 540 winning percentage over across 10 years. Not many teams do that. So you're going to be among the best teams of the decade. And it's going to give you a lot of playoff opportunities. You know, that what that means is you're going to have some really good seasons where, you know, you're winning 60-plus percent of your games. And you might have a year or two where you get decimated with injuries. You're lighter on talent. Some guys don't pan out. And maybe you have a losing season. But on the whole, you're going to average 540, and that's good. On the flip side... You know, a lot of fans took it as, well, we're just aiming to win 54% of our games every year. 
And 54% of the games is going to put you in pretty much a weak division winner or the wild card range most of the time. Like this year, a 540 winning percentage in the National League would not have won any divisions and it would have put them in the second wild card. In the American League, it's about where the Twins were as one of the weaker division winners of the last few years. And it would have, 540 would have not made the wild card. So basically, they would have been effectively the Twins. That's not an awful place to be, but if that's if that's what you're aiming for, then sometimes you're going to miss and you're going to come in under that. So he said it, unfortunately, but his point is actually not bad. You know, you want to be consistently good. Ideally, you'd be consistently great, but that's really hard to do. Um, be consistently good. And the best way to do that is to not play in the margins all the time. Baseball is a game of failure. Baseball is a game of margins as it is. So you want to put the most talent possible on your roster because that talent's not going to win every time. And if you're consistently, like this year, the Cubs saw that they improved the roster. They had good players. They have some guys who are maybe bordering on stars. You know, Justin Steele, up until his last couple starts, was a legitimate Cy Young contender. And I could have argued at the time the Cy Young favorite. Dansby Swanson is a very good shortstop. Seiya Suzuki, the second half of the season, was one of the best hitters in baseball. But over the course of 162, the Cubs don't have anybody who is the best player at their position or top two at their position. They do defensively. They do in some aspects of the game. You know, Ian Happ has one of the best walk rates. He's really good on base percentage. Cody Ballinger is a very good first baseman, a very good center fielder, not the best of either one. Um, Seiya Suzuki was great for a half. Dansby Swanson, Nico Horner, elite defensively, but not so much on offense. And you just want to get a couple more guys. If you can have one or two guys, you can just count on. They're going to be there. They're going to hit three. They're going to hit four. Um, and they're just going to be rocks for you in the lineup. You know, Every pitcher has to fear them. Every pitcher has to game plan for them. It makes everybody else better. You know, The Cubs, on the whole, were a pretty decent offensive team with Ian Happ hitting third, Danzy Swanson hitting fifth a lot of times, or sixth. If you suddenly add, whether they trade for Pete Alonso, trade for Juan Soto, sign Shohei Otani, bring Bellinger back, you start adding, you know, another guy or two to that lineup, and now all of a sudden you've got maybe Nico Horner's or uh, Ian Happ's leading off. You've got Dansby Swanson hitting seventh now. That changes that lineup a lot. You know, we, we saw it just when Jamer Candelario came on. You know, he's not even a superstar, but he made that lineup deeper and made the Cubs better until he got hurt. So that's going to be the focus of the offseason. We can get into who's and the what's and all that after the playoffs are over. Um, there are a lot of guys with options that teams are going to decide on or players are going to decide on who opts in, who opts out. We'll start to get a better feel for what kind of trades might be in the mix. Like none of this is going to happen until the World Series is over. You know, trades are frozen. The only thing that can happen right now until five games or five days after the World Series ends is guys who have pending free agents can sign their own guys. So the Cubs, in theory, could sign Cody Bellinger. They could work a new deal with Kyle Hendricks if they decide to scrap the option and maybe go for a two-year deal with a lower average annual value than his $16 million option. They could do some deals like that. Um, I don't really expect a lot. But those are the only things that can happen until five days after the World Series. After that, guys are free agents. 
then you're going to start seeing the rumor mill go for go full blast. At that point, trades are on the table. All things become possible. So enjoy the playoffs. Even when the Cubs aren't involved, you know, I'm still suckered in. It's still going to be a great ride. And I'm still going to have a lot of fun with it. So enjoy what's left of the season. And then we've got a big offseason ahead of us and plenty to talk about. Thank you for joining me today. If you like this episode, please drop a rating and a review wherever it is you get your podcasts. Or share an episode with a friend. Just a few seconds from you gives me great feedback and helps other Cub fans find the show. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Threads, Blue Sky, and YouTube, all at CubsPSPlus. And check out the Patreon page, CubsPSPlus.Patreon.com, to help support the show and keep it ad-free. This podcast is also now a part of the Bleacher Bunch Productions at the Fans First Network. As always, the music for this podcast comes from Prospect Park West by Jerry McCoy.